and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. Purity and Danger, a book exploring the concepts of pollution and taboo in societies around the world, made its author Mary Douglas, FBA, one of Britain's most celebrated anthropologists. In this episode, fellows of the British Academy Richard Farden and Henrietta Moore discuss the book's lasting impact and Douglas's equally fascinating later work. My name is Richard Farden. I'm Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at SOAS University of London. And my great thinker is the anthropologist Mary Douglas. Mary Douglas, who died in 2007, was the most widely read British anthropologist of her generation. Her works continue to inspire researchers in a range of disciplines far beyond anthropology. Indeed, her influence outside anthropology probably exceeds that inside her own discipline. Born in 1921 to parents in colonial service in Burma, together with her sister Pat, Mary was sent home to be educated at the Sacred Heart Convent in Roehampton, an institution she believed imbued her with a feeling for hierarchy that never left her. After reading a first degree at Oxford, Mary undertook war service in the colonial office, in the course of which she met and was so intrigued by anthropologists that she returned to Oxford when the war ended to undertake postgraduate research. This led her to the then Belgian Congo, where she lived among the Lele, about whom she wrote her doctorate. But a civil war in the Congo and responsibility for a young family persuaded her to concentrate on more theoretical concerns. In 1951, she moved to London and took up a position at University College. What are probably her two most famous books followed, Purity and Danger in 1966 and Natural Symbols in 1970. In these works, she elaborated the idea that human beings are fundamentally ritual creatures, that rituals structure our lives together and that these rituals also uphold shared ways of classifying and experiencing the world. She was intrigued particularly by what did not quite fit our classificatory systems. The aphorism she used, that dirt is matter out of place, may have been borrowed, but it became memorable because of the insights she drew from it. Things are not dirty in themselves. Even a clean pair of shoes pollutes a dining table. We react to matter out of place because it violates our conceptual categories. Where there is dirt, there is system. Dirt is the byproduct of a systematic ordering and classification of matter, insofar as ordering involves rejecting inappropriate elements. The idea of dirt takes us straight into the field of symbolism and promises a link-up with more obviously symbolic systems of purity. Why were some societies more concerned about pollution than others? Why did some have more rules than others and react more strongly to breaches of them? Mary Douglas's later works embarked on wide-ranging comparisons, not just of the societies most anthropologists had studied in Africa, Asia and Oceania, but also of the contemporary societies of Europe and America. Her subjects covered a staggering range, from studies of consumer behaviour and the ways goods were used as means to send and receive messages, to the differing degrees of risk to which individuals were willing to expose themselves and others, and to the truth or otherwise of the idea that Western societies were becoming increasingly secular. In 1977, she took up a research directorship at the Russell Sage Foundation in New York, and she combined that position with visiting professorships at New York University, Columbia and Yale, 
remaining in the States for 11 years until she returned in 1988, when she took up an honorary professorship at University College, which continued from then for almost 20 years until her death. Here with me to discuss Mary Douglas's life and work is the anthropologist Henrietta Moore, previously the William Wise Chair of Social Anthropology at the University of Cambridge and currently founder and first director of the Institute for Global Prosperity at University College London. Henrietta, welcome. Shall we start by discussing that famous phrase, matter out of place? In Mary's work, it's very clear that if you're going to make classifications or if you're going to classify the social world in various ways, then you're going to end up with things that don't fit in. And one of her good examples about that is food preferences, because food is a very strange thing in human society. It's something that people love, but it's also something that can make people feel absolutely disgusted. So, for example, we think it would be an abomination here in the United Kingdom to eat cats or dogs. And in many places in the world, there are other ideas about food, what's appropriate to eat and what it's not appropriate to eat. So, for example, we don't tend to eat grasshoppers either, although I have eaten them and they taste a little bit like crunchy bacon. They have a nutty taste. But I would also say that she was particularly interested in various taboos or restraints on food that appeared in the Bible. And one of the things that she wrote a lot about is the question of the prohibition on pork or what is the problem with pigs? And she basically started with a rather famous statement from Leviticus that said that pigs are an abomination because the pig divideth the hoof, yet cheweth not the cud. And when you come with that phrase, you think, well, that's a very strange way of classifying something. But actually, of course, Leviticus also prescribes both the rock badger and the rabbit for the same kinds of reasons. In other words, what's important about food classification is the way you divide the world up. And what you choose as that framework, the reasons you give for dividing the world up, can be quite specific to time and place. And Mary was really fascinated by the relationship between classification and time and space. One of the things that fascinated Mary was not just that there were prohibitions against eating certain sorts of animals, but some animals released an enormous force for good. The pig was an abomination. The lele celebrated the pangolin, the scaly anteater in Central Africa. Here was a, a creature that lived in trees, was covered in scales, gave birth singly or in pairs, like a human being, and when approached by the hunter, curled up and offered itself as if it was a sacrifice. Yes. And killing the pangolin, she said, released an enormous force for good. And right at the end of Purity in Danger, Mary Douglas returns to the pangolin. In their description of the pangolin's behaviour and in their attitudes to its cult, Lele says things which uncannily recall passages of the Old Testament, interpreted in the Christian tradition. Like Abraham's ram in the thicket, and like Christ, the pangolin is spoken of as the voluntary victim. It is not caught, but rather it comes to the village. It is a kingly victim. The village treats its corpse as a living chief and requires the behaviour of respect for a chief on pain of future disaster. If its rituals are faithfully performed, the women will conceive and animals will enter hunters' traps and fall to their arrows. The mysteries of the pangolin are sorrowful mysteries. Now I will enter the house of affliction, they sing, as initiates carry its corpse round the village. No more of its cult songs were told to me, except this tantalising line. So 
Mary's view of classification was that it produced matter out of place, that it produced things that didn't fit in. And some of these were abominations, but others of them were sacred. Yes, and that's a really good point, because one of the problems here is to try to understand when we have classifications, whether these abominations or these things that are matter out of place are just the result of making the classification or whether they're actually intrinsic to the whole purpose and process of making the classification itself. And I think that when things are sacred, we see that they are intrinsic to the way of trying to reimagine the world according to our own categories and values. And of course, when we see things that don't correspond, they open up a space for us to do things in the world. And that's often why they're immensely powerful, or why they refer to things like fertility, in other words, to things that are fecund, the things that make things more than they appear to be. And I think the pangolin is a very good example of that, and of course the Christian god another. And sacrifice, and it's important for human societies, I think, plays that particular kind of role. Henrietta, let's put Mary's life and career into some sort of context. She joined a brilliant generation of students at Oxford, and I suppose we could say that she was in the second generation of modern British social anthropologists as a a student of Sir Edward Evans Pritchard at Oxford. Her initial fieldwork, as we saw, was in Africa, although in the Belgian Congo rather than in the areas more associated with British anthropology in Africa, which of course have been the British colonial areas. And so that book on the Lely of Kasai a little bit fell through the cracks and she really came to prominence when she wrote Purity and Danger in 1966, when the Sunday Times published a list of the 100 most important books of the 20th century. Purity and Danger was quite prominently on it, but its initial reception didn't really give us a clue to that being about to happen. Yes, that's absolutely right. And what's interesting about Purity and Danger, I think, is that it's about similarities and differences between modern and traditional societies. And that wasn't really what the Oxford social anthropologists were about. They were more about studying the traditional societies of what we would now call the Global South. And so when Mary published her book on the Lele, nobody really realised its worth. It was partly that it wasn't about British colonial territories, but it was also partly because she was beginning to try to develop a more sociological theory, a theory which understood how ritual and values and beliefs intersected with social forms. And that, of course, was why she was a student of Evans Pritchard, who had done that work exactly in his famous study of the Nur of the Sudan. When we think about Mary Douglas more broadly, we recognise that she was one of a number of really spectacularly brilliant British social anthropologist who just happened to be women. The one who preceded her was Audrey Richards, born in 1899, and of course Mary Douglas herself, born in 1921, and perhaps now our greatest living anthropologist, Marilyn Strathern, born in 1941. So in that 40-year period, British social anthropology was blessed with three very spectacular women. Problem is that each one of them was, in a way, something of an outsider in their initial work. So Audrey Richards wrote Hunger and Work in a Savage Tribe, which wasn't the book that made her famous. And Marilyn Strathern's early work on Papua New Guinea were not the books that made her famous. And in fact, when we think about the relationship between modern and traditional societies, all three of those anthropologists were interested in one way and another of what the links between modern and traditional societies are and how we understand them. And their idea, I think, in part 
reflected in their work and perhaps refracted through it also was that we understand a great deal about ourselves from studying other societies. Indeed, Purity and Danger, when it first came out, was received as a rather conventional text, in fact. And the the furor around Mary's work didn't really get started until Natural Symbols came out four years later, which was received in a very different way from Purity and Danger. Natural Symbols was interpreted by many, and notably by Edmund Leach, as a piece of Catholic apologetics, and that Mary Douglas had basically put her anthropology in the service of her Catholic beliefs, because the book was interpreted rightly, in fact, in part as a reaction to the Second Vatican Council, and the early chapters of it had been delivered under the title The Contempt of Ritual, which was a a rejection on Mary's part of the reforms to Catholic ritual that had been proposed through the Second Vatican Council. So the reputation was made by purity and danger, but something of the notoriety of the mid-period of Mary's work was provoked by natural symbols when it came out in 1970. What happened with purity and danger was that it worked through a set of ideas which professional social anthropologists understood. So they, when they reviewed the book, said, well, we already know this, which is always a great danger in intellectual life anyway, that that's how your books will be reviewed by your peers. But, of course, for other people outside anthropology, this was opening up anthropological thinking and it allowed them to attach those ideas to their own work. So it was powerful in that regard. When we come to natural symbols, you're right, we're dealing with something where Mary Douglas begins to reflect through a variety of means on this question of how we learn about ourselves by reflecting on others. Now, I'm not surprised that Edmund Leach actually said that she'd been a Catholic apologist. He also accused me of being biased towards my own work because I had published a book called Feminism and Anthropology. And when I replied to him on that point, I made the point that I would also make about Mary Douglas's work, which is to say that if you articulate a passion and a position and you follow it through in your work, your reader is able to understand where you're starting from and why you take that particular position. If, on the other hand, you constantly just provide an idea that your work is subjective and has no connection at all to your own position in life or your own beliefs or your own values, you imply that it is completely objective and not in any way associated with any of your prejudices, which, of course, is always misleading. And of course, and the difference between purity and danger and natural symbols reinforces that because in purity and danger, Mary Douglas is fundamentally pursuing a difference between them and us. Contemporary societies are much more reflexive. They think about the bases of their own beliefs and so forth. By natural symbols, she's got rid of that distinction and she is basically saying them and us are just the same. Yes, that's right. And I think that that's one of the strengths of her work that carries over into the contemporary moment. And contemporary anthropology, of course, is made up of a number of very sharply divided theoretical positions. But one part of it is this idea that there are universals in human cognition, that the importance of ritual, the importance of making sense of your experience is something that we all share as humans. And that's something that was extremely important to Mary Douglas. And she believed, I think, that people in every part of the world are as capable of metaphysics as Catholic theologians. 
She also believed that the variety between types of society was as great in the contemporary world as it had been in the past. And so I remember when I was a, a student of hers in the early 1970s, listening to her lectures, she lectured on what she called secular savages. And here she was responding to the work of the French sociologists of the late 19th century, the Anne Sociologique School, who assumed that there was a greater deal of religiosity in small-scale societies. And Mary was fascinated by the instances of African societies that were small in scale, but apparently not very religious at all. And so she, she had the distinction between secularised societies on the one hand and ritualised societies on the other, applying as much to them as it did to us. And this was part of the basis that she later developed as an argument against the idea that Western societies were becoming increasingly secularised which was something that she didn't accept. And she didn't accept it in the 1970s, which was a time when most other theorists, in fact, did accept that. Few would accept it now. But in the 1970s, that was a conventional view. And also at the time when she was writing, she was, I think, speaking out against this evolutionary idea that had crept into anthropological thinking, that small societies somehow started with magic and witchcraft and then progressed through religion and then you ended up with really sophisticated societies who didn't have any religions at all. And I don't think that many anthropologists would agree with that now, especially as we see how relevant her work would be to understanding, if you what we might call the return of religion in contemporary society. So when both you and I started out as social scientists, we were basically taught and brought up, if you like, in the tradition that modern societies were becoming increasingly secular and that religion would somehow disappear. And then we, like everyone else in societies around the world, find ourselves in a situation where religion has returned with enormous force. And we are somehow unprepared for this. And we're unprepared because in many places the religion that we see is not the one that we expected or not the one that we thought was dying. So, for example, one thing that's very important in contemporary Africa is Christianity. Perhaps Africa is the most Christian continent in the world now. And Mary would have understood that because when she first started her work on the Lele, although they appeared to be a small group of people living in the middle of the Belgian Congo, they were already significant Christian converts by the time she did her work in the late 1940s. And I think she understood very clearly that people give up on ideas of how to deal with the kinds of experiences we have in life, how to make sense of them. We have to have some set of values and beliefs that we apply to these things and that we can't just draw those values and beliefs from ourselves. We must have some connection in some sense to a transcendent being or beings or sets of principles which are larger than we are. And I think she wouldn't have been at all surprised to see the return of religion. Henrietta, you remarked on the three generations of very important women anthropologists and were too modest to put any further generations after that. Let's put Mary back into that context. There were lots of women anthropologists. They weren't necessarily heads of department. They didn't necessarily get to the highest position. But being a woman didn't per se, make you an outsider. But Mary was an outsider in, in a more complex sense that she was both a, a woman anthropologist and also a, a cradle Catholic. And therefore her faith was a matter of loyalty, belonging 
and she used a lot of images to do with what we would call gut feelings. So when she talked about natural symbols, her point was not, as she's been misquoted as saying sometimes, that symbols are natural, but symbols must appear natural. And that's really important. As a woman anthropologist, I wonder really to what extent she was ever a, a feminist. She had some very strong ideas about the way in which women's roles should be differentiated from men's within hierarchical organisations and the kinds of powers that women should, should have. And these powers should be differentiated from those of men. But certainly in the 1970s, she was not at all seen as a feminist anthropologist. In fact, she was seen quite the contrary as almost a conservative apologist. Yes, I think this is a difficult issue. So she was born in 1921. And as you say, she was born into a family already involved in the colonial service and came back to continue her education in the Sacred Heart Convent. And of course, at that time, there would have been an extreme emphasis on the management of the bodies of those young women, on the kinds of things that they were wearing, gloves, on, you know, not seeing yourself whilst you were bathing and so on. But also on that spectacular thing that Catholic ritual does, which impresses me to this day. If you think of the life of a nun in such a convent, how many times they would have kneeled in the same place at the same time in the whole of their adult life in order to convey their faith. This is an extreme disciplining of of the body. And I think this carries forward into Mary's ideas. So she would not have been a feminist in the way that we understand it now. We couldn't even perhaps have called her a proto-feminist. But we could certainly have thought about the fact that as a young woman brought up in a convent, one of the things she would have experienced is women in charge, <laughs> women in roles of responsibility, women in a hierarchy that actually functioned, women making a world that worked for them women engaging in the highest kinds of intellectual debate. And she would have known about that and have drawn on it and did draw on it all of her working life. But equally, she was a woman of her time. And so when, of course, she came to start her working life, she found herself having to manage, as indeed women do nowadays, the demands of a domestic life and a professional life. And I think that when she published the book on the Lele, there was a little time between that publication and then, of course, Purity and Danger and Natural Symbols. And part of that time was taken up indeed with the bringing up of children. And I don't think that she would have thought in her generation of a life being constrained by domestic life, she would have thought in terms of how do you get your ideas down on paper whilst dealing with children who are suffering from mumps. That would have been her challenge. But I think she would not have thought of this as a, a system of political economy, in a sense. She was a woman of considerable intellect, drive and energy, and she knew the value of that. I probably wouldn't have been a social anthropologist had it not been for Mary Douglas. I became an undergraduate student at University College in 1970, taking a degree in economics, but also courses in social anthropology. And I sat through Mary's lectures in probably 1972-73. And these were lectures that she delivered under the title of Religion, Morals and Symbolism. And she was also beginning to work on the research in economics, specifically on consumption behaviour. And so she became interested in me as a, a young economist sitting in her anthropology lectures. And I was very inspired by Mary's lecturing style. She didn't use a lot of notes and she certainly didn't read anything out. And she would set off on a train of thought and you would trot along behind trying to keep up with her. 
and periodically it felt as if she rather ran out of steam and didn't know where she was going herself. And uh, I loved this because I'd never been taught by anybody who thought on their feet before. This, I thought, this is how anthropologists think. I'd rather like to be one of these. When I started social anthropology in the 70s also, there were always courses, I think, in all anthropology departments at that time, which were called something like religion, ritual and symbolism or something of that order. And in a way, I think I perhaps wouldn't have been a social anthropologist without Mary Douglas either, because it's those ideas. It's when you start to think about, so why do people worry about putting shoes on the table? What mm. is that about? And she often said herself that she took things which were humble or domestic as her starting point. And I think her ability to do that really got under the skin of generations and generations of young people in all sorts of different disciplines, in anthropology, but in many other disciplines too. It's quite surprising, for example, how many architects are quite passionately interested in Mary Douglas's work, how many economists, how many philosophers. She's really endured in that sense. And I think it's this ability to make it clear to us that we're understanding something about ourselves as we understand her, something about her writing, as well as understanding people in other places in the world. It strikes me that she was important to both of us for almost exactly the same reasons that her contemporaries did not think her work in the 60s and 70s was all that good. The accolades, the honorary degrees and so on and so forth, they all come quite late in the career. And in fact, she was made a dame of the British Empire eight days before she died. It was very, very late in her life that this recognition came. And I think that arc of the life tells us something about the way in which our discipline has changed over our own lifetimes and what we now celebrate about the ability to be a public intellectual, to talk to a wide group of people, but didn't value as highly at all in the 1960s and 1970s when anthropology was much more worried about credentialising itself as something which had a, a very specific subject matter and was a profession with professional standards. I think that there was still an idea that anthropology was about the study of societies in the global south and it had come out of this colonial history, which was important to it. And one of the things, though, that was important about Mary in this regard is that paradoxically, whilst other anthropologists were thinking about that, her work was speaking much more to the zeitgeist because this is the 1960s and 1970s. We have, you know, a whole change of world, really, in 1968 in Europe. We had, you know, the rise of feminism, the rise of all the movements against race, discrimination, all of these kinds of things. Mary was actually speaking to, in a sense, how are people excluded, why are they excluded, for what reason. So actually she was talking about the things that really mattered. And I think, therefore, you know, when we start in the 70s, we pick up on the tail end of that. We recognise that this is a kind of emancipatory thinking. So why should we consider Mary Douglas to have been a great thinker of the 20th century? For me, it's partly to do with the sheer breadth of her work, the curiosity she brought to so many different subjects, the intense effort that she expended in trying to find a single theoretical perspective from which to make sense of the past, the present, the here, the somewhere else. Somebody who devoted her life to thinking very, very deeply about the contemporary problems that confronted her in her lifetime. She had such a distinctive voice. You can always hear Mary in her own writings and in her own thinking. 
And it allows those who follow her, so you and I and others, to follow the pathway of that thinking. And that's something which I think makes a great thinker, is can you not just be inspired by their thinking, can you follow it in such a way that you can deviate from that path and yet come back to it and go off down your own highways and byways, following different kinds of things that come out of it? So definitely a great thinker. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.